I want to ask you a question. If, if I were to set in front of you today a king snake and a coral snake, could you tell the difference and why would it matter? So I'm going to guess that question probably seems a little bit odd to you. Luke, that's an odd way to begin a podcast. But let me tell you, it actually is a question I grew up with. So some of you know I grew up in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, the little community that my family lived in was just outside the city limits. Uh, the little incorporated city was called Hill Country Village. And most of the homes in the township had multiple acres on which uh, they sat, which also meant they had all kinds of snakes. So I'll tell you, snakes were my father's bane. Uh, but I, I myself, I knew better. With regularity, my dad would say to me, Luke, the only good snake is a dead snake. To which I would typically reply, Dad, leave those snakes alone. Where snakes were concerned, the shotgun was my father's friend. Truth is, we probably don't like snakes, but God created them for a reason. Our, our home had less insects and rodents because snakes kept those populations in check. And that's kind of what made it important to be able to identify king snakes. King snakes are a family's best friend when it comes to mice and rats. They eat them. Uh, you, you actually want them around. They're helpful snakes. Dad put that shotgun down. King snakes are good snakes. Not so much coral snakes. Here, here's the problem. They look amazingly similar. They, they look similar, but their bite is not in any way the same. If a king snake were to bite you, it might hurt a bit. Not all that much, I can tell you from experience, but a little bit. A coral snake, on the other hand, has venom that is highly poisonous. Considered actually a cousin to the cobra. Most people don't know that. Uh, cousin to the cobra. Coral snakes have venom that is the second most deadly in the world. Anyone remember the most deadly? Black mambas are number one. Uh, the venom from a coral snake acts as a neurotoxin. If you leave it untreated, it will impact first speech, then vision. It can lead to cardiac arrest. So what I'm saying is it's kind of important to know what they look like, particularly if you live in Texas or one of the southern states in which they reside. So you learn a little poem, a little lyric uh, when you're a kid that helps. Uh, you see, coral snakes are extremely colorful, just like underwater coral is colorful. The snake gets its name from that. These snakes are red and yellow and black. And guess what? The colors of a king snake are the same, red and yellow and black. That's incredible. Both snakes, from a visual perspective, are of similar size and shape. So, you learn a little lyric. It goes like this. Red and yellow, kill a fellow. Red and black, venom lack. That, that's the difference. When visually you appraise a king snake, you quickly see the red and black color bands that form its body always touch one another. You'll see yellow, black, red. This pattern repeats itself through the length of a snake. On a coral snake, the pattern is different. It is red, yellow, black. Red and yellow kill a fellow. The colors spell deadly. For me then, growing up, 
I became adept at distinguishing these two snakes. Allowed me to advise my shotgun-wielding dad to leave king snakes alone, thus keeping our rodent population down while firing away at any coral snake that might mean harm. Which brings me to our topic today. I want to I pick up today where we left off last week in our examination of what is biblically understood as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So just remember with me what's happening. Remember with me that we're at the end of Daniel's life. He served the Lord well. He'll die, of course, before seeing Israel return home. Yet God has allowed him to live long enough to watch the overthrow of Babylon at the hands of Persia. And more importantly, to witness Cyrus's decree, a decree that would allow all of the Israelites that have been enslaved for so long to return to Jerusalem. Now, what God's doing in my mind is significant. While Daniel's mind is caught up in the here and now, will Israel ever return home? What God wants him to see is something grander and greater. There's another return home that God wants Daniel to see. The return to our new home on a new earth. This, Jesus would say, Daniel, is the most important return. So what we've seen God doing then in chapter 12 is giving to Daniel a vision, a revelation pointing to the end time. Um, as we come back to the vision, verse 4 of chapter 12, let's again hear the words that Jesus speaks to Daniel. And again, we'll just pray over this, Lord, that you continue to give us your insight over this scripture. So the words are these. This is this is verse 4, chapter 12. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the end of time. Now, when we hear those words, the question that arises is, okay, you want me to shut up this book, seal it to the end of time. Jesus, you've told me about the future. You want me to seal it up, close it. So my question is, well, when will you open it? When will the words actually become unsealed or have they already been? So last week, we, we talked a lot about this, that they, they actually have been unsealed. In fact, last week, we noted that, that Daniel, uh, his vision is probably more accessible today than it could have been in his time. And we find that, uh, of course, in the book of Revelation. So last week, I did this. I set two scriptures side by side in order for you to, to see what is happening here in, in Daniel and then over in Revelation. We started with Daniel's words 12.4 and then jumped over to Revelation 5. So again, I'll, I'll just go right back to 12.4 and uh, read it again and then over to Revelation. So 12.4, Daniel, shut up the words and seal this book. Okay, we have that. Now, go back to Revelation chapter 5 and see the connection. In chapter 5, of Revelation, we meet John who comes years after Daniel. Daniel's story concludes 537 BC. John's takes place around 9080. That's a 600 year gap. So 600 years after Daniel's dead and gone, here comes John. Like Daniel, God has swept John up into this ecstasy, gives him a vision that will describe what God will do from the first century all the way up to his return. In chapter 5, we stand at the beginning of the vision, and we hear the words. Listen for this connection again. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within 
and on the back sealed with seven seals. So we've got Daniel seal up, seal up these words. He seals them up. Now we're in the revelation. And what do we see? We see the angel of God's Sabbath army around the throne in heaven. And what do they see? They see God seated on the throne with this sealed scroll. Now, in Revelation 5, the end times have begun. And it's time to now begin to open up this vision. The only one worthy to open the vision, of course, is Jesus. So it happens. The first seal, snap, is opened. And what happens? Kind of like we talked about last week, the four horsemen of the apocalypse begin to ride forth. So let's, again, let's just hear these words and then we're going to move forward. I want to talk about these horses. Uh, to John are given these words, quote, I looked and behold a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from earth so that people would slay one another. He was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. Its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. And then when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So, Here's the question we begin with today. Who and what are these horses? They're not red, yellow, black, not a coral snake, but they are a snake, a snake of the worst kind, a snake whose bite is not only fatal, but eternally fatal. These four horses are agents of the snake, Satan, and their colors are red and black and green and white. So here's what I want to do. Let's talk about each of these horses and answer the question, what do they represent and how do we see them riding in our world today? Before we jump into our description of the horses, I'm just going to remind you about the approach. I'm speaking hermeneutically that we're taking. Last week, I recognized that there are different hermeneutical approaches that various theologians take towards understanding the revelation. Some will take a futurist perspective. In other words, when they read the Revelation, they translate most of the action being recorded by John into a future yet to come. They would read Revelation and say, none of this has taken place. It's all getting ready to take place. Others do the opposite. They take what is most often referred to as a preterist's perspective. That is, they translate most of the action recorded by John into the past. This suggests that the action of the Revelation is completed. They would say, look, when you read the Revelation, it's already happened. It's already done. Now, the approach that I'm taking, one that I believe fits the genre identified by John at the beginning of the book, is most often referred to as the symbolic approach. I like to call it the apocalyptic approach. After all, that's the genre that, that John identifies. This is the apocalypsis, the apocalyptic genre of Jesus Christ. So, 
please hear me on this. Just because the approach is called symbolic, that does not mean that what we are describing is to be understood within a hypothetical or perceived context. Not at all. If you employ this particular hermeneutic, you will absolutely associate all of the action being described with very real people, with very real places, with very real events. What is believed is that Jesus is providing John with symbols or word pictures that point to these very real people, places, and events. More so, what we believe is that each symbol or word picture describes real people, places, and events that have occurred, they're in the past, continue to occur, they're in the present. And each symbol is capable of pointing us forward to events that are going to occur in the future. They're very broad in scope, and I believe this is true of each of the four horsemen. We can see them riding in the past. We see them riding in the present. We can anticipate how they will ride in the future. So what are they? In no way am I going to even try to become comprehensive here. Uh, on, this, on this platform, you can access our entire study of the book of Revelation. And a pretty comprehensive study. But for our purposes today, I want to point kind of in a quick hitting way to some of the ways in which we're able to see each of the identified horsemen riding as present, being present in our world today. The point being that when Jesus speaks to Daniel, his words have relevance for today. What Jesus tells Daniel to seal up has been broken open and is now before us calling us to become ready for what? The future, his return. So here we go, the red horse. I'm going to start with this one and come back to the white horse at the end. Of the red horse, John again writes, quote, its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slay one another. And he was given a great sword. This one is not hard to understand. Over the years, Biblical scholars have all agreed that the red horse represents what it means for human beings to take that which they have not created, that which does not belong to them, namely the lives of another or other human beings, in violation of the fifth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Included here, of course, are such things as war, but be careful with this one. After all, we know that God has given to the government a sword of justice, meaning not all war is a violation of the fifth commandment. And then there's murder. All murder is. Abortion. All abortion is. Gun violence. Terroristic destruction of life. Even hatred. Remember, Jesus said, I tell you that even if one considers their neighbor with a heart of hatred, they have committed murder. Now, Going all the way back to the first recorded murder, that of Abel, we know that the red horse has been riding. But in particular, what the revelation suggests is that in the last times, the incidents of humans spilling the blood of one another will increase. The hoofbeats of this heart horse will grow loud. Here I, here I want to just say that I can't think of anyone in my circles, even outside of my circles, who would argue that... This is not true of the day in which we live. It, it really, it's not possible to even turn on one's television and not hear news of devastation, loss of human life, the shedding of blood going on in the Ukraine, a serial killer on the loose, 
another school shooting, not to mention the silence in our news media concerning the 630,000 abortions that occur annually in the United States, the spilling of blood. I was thinking about this the other day, and I couldn't help but think just about the increased incidence of shootings in our nation's schools. As of this podcast, there have been 484 mass shootings in the United States. That's more shootings than days. I'm telling you, something's happening, and it's not good. By the way, I was discussing this with a good friend the other day, and we both observed that as these shootings become more commonplace, the mantra of mental health is made more and more prominent. We've got a mental health issue in our country. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm aware that we're living in a time where there, there is a mental health crisis affecting our nation, no doubt about it. That said, however, let me make an observation. Few, if any, in the business of media are reporting that the real crisis that we're facing is not mental, but spiritual. There is a direct correlation that exists between the number of people in our country identifying as Christian, a number that's plummeting, by the way, and the number of shootings that are taking place, a number that is skyrocketing. Personally, I don't care if people call me crazy for saying this, but I see a correlation between mass shootings and the potential involvement directly related not to mental health, but to spiritual possession. I believe there's a demonic element to them. The bottom line is there is no way to be alive in our time and not hear the hoofbeats of this horse loud and clear. The black horse. Of this horse, John writes, And I looked and behold a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Now, while the red horse seems straightforward towards understanding, this this horse gets a little bit more difficult for people to comprehend. We often look at this horse and we have to ask, why are there scales in the rider's hand? And how is this horse related to wheat, barley, oil, wine? So the, the secret to understanding this horse, in my opinion, starts with the scales picture them in your mind. To look at them is to immediately understand from a symbolic perspective that what is being spoken to here is the reality of imbalance. The scales are out of balance. So we have to ask the question, what is out of balance? Here, wheat and barley represent one thing, wine and oil another. The first, wheat and barley, represent food groups that are essential for the sustenance of life. They are are simply necessary for life. Wine and oil, on the other hand, represent food groups that are good, they're tasty, they enhance flavor, but they are not essential. So notice the money side of this word picture. We're told that the essentials, wheat and barley, are expensive. They're a denarius. Put put this into perspective. In Jesus' time, a denarius was equivalent to a day's wage. So today, let's say you, you labor for $20 an hour. If you work 10 hours a day, that'd be $200 a day. Imagine spending $200 on a loaf of bread. You know what this indicates? Scarcity. There's not enough bread to go around. Now, obviously, the words do not harm the oil and wine indicate that these are plentiful. These food groups, not essential to life. 
So I, I'm going to try to say this plainly. What, what's being symbolized here? There's plenty of what might be considered expensive commodities, plenty to go around, but who cares? Because there is at the same time not enough of the essential to go around, meaning the whole of earth, God's good creation, is out of balance. And wow, can we see this in our world today. Whether it's rain and essential, that seems like it's been turned off like a spigot in some areas, but flooding others, or crops in abundance in some places, scarce in others. We look at our world and we say, it's out of balance. When I read about this horse, I, I think about what we call natural disasters. I prefer the term God-ordained disasters. We see floods, hurricanes, hail, tornadoes, tsunamis. I'm just getting started. The scales are out of balance. Can you hear the horse riding? No doubt. Full tilt. And you know what? I believe God's using all of it. The ghastly green or pale horse. Here are the words used to describe this horse. Quote, and I looked and behold a pale horse and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, with pestilence, and by wild beasts of the earth. So I have to tell you, as we think about this horse, that every time I hear these words, I think of an old Western movie. You may or may not remember the film. It was released in 1985. Wow, am I old? Starring Clint Eastwood. As the film begins, this verse from the Revelation is spoken. And as a viewer, you become aware of one thing. There is going to be a lot of death in this film. True. Because the rider on the horse is described as death itself, followed by Hades a term that in context refers to the grave. When you read the description, it's clear that it reads a little differently from the previous two. While the previous are more singularly focused, this horse represents a variety of ways that people can die, whether sword, red horse, famine, black horse, or wild beast, that one's new, or pestilence. You can put COVID into that category. The point of this horse has to do with the fact that all of us, no matter who we are, will die. The question is not, will I die or how will I die, but am I ready to die? Because death is coming. It's almost as if Jesus, through John, is asking the question, can you hear the hoofbeats? Are you ready to meet death? This is a horse from which no one can escape. The white horse. So you probably noticed, you notice that. With this horse, I actually inverted the order of the scripture in Revelation 5. The revelation starts or begins with the white horse and ends with the pale, ghastly green horse. And I have to say, that order makes sense in that the pale rider is somewhat of a summation of the whole. So why did I invert the order? I'm going to tell you why. Because I want to conclude by looking at what I consider to be the deadliest of all four horses, the white horse. Before I move forward, allow me to address in an upfront way one primary objection. I do want you to know that when you study commentary on Revelation 5, particularly as it stems from a symbolist's hermeneutic, most, not all, but most writers like to assign to the symbol of the white horse the person of Jesus Christ. I think there's a couple of reasons for this. First is the color white. To whom does the color belong? Inarguably, Jesus. So, by the way, it is the crown that he's wearing on his hand. White is his color, gold is his crown. Make no mistake about it. And then are the subsequent words to the white horses given to conquer. 
Again, listen to the text. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. Its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. I mean, who else would this be but the Christ? Surely the white horse is Jesus. Hold on. Not so fast. After years of studying contrastive approaches to the white horse through the writings of conservative biblical scholars, I'm of the opinion that this horse may look like Jesus, but guess what? It's not. No. I'm convinced that the symbol of the white horse represents the most deadly of all four horses because it does look like Jesus. So what is it? The white horse, I believe, is a symbol for false religion and in particular, false Christianity. I say this for a number of reasons. Number one, context. Remember with me the context for Revelation chapter 5. Jesus is opening the seven seals that will result in the future for the church. With the opening of the first seal is the unleashing of horses that have one aim, the destruction of men. Now, God will use all four for his purposes towards the good of the church. But make no mistake, these horses desire to conquer men. When the white horse is introduced, its rider means to do harm to men, to conquer them. Number two, dress up. Just thinking about this, in a few weeks, we in the West will participate in the annual ritual of going door to door for candy. Kids wearing costumes will show up in force at our doors this Halloween. Here's what I find interesting. Throughout the scriptures, we find that our adversary, Lucifer, loves to play dress up as well. Every time we see him in scripture. Guess whose clothing he's wearing? Yep, Jesus's. Actually, it makes sense. Our enemy wants to appear as the good guy. Hey, I'm the good guy. When what he means to do is destroy. Number three, history. Throughout history, if we had to identify one force that has constantly worked against the gospel, it's not a force outside of the church. Now, what did Jesus say? The gaze of hell cannot prevail against the gospel. But rather, it's the church itself. It's the church as it appears to be doing the work of Jesus when it is not. It is the false church. And guess what? I can't think of a time in history when this has been more true than it is today. I think this is interesting. Recently, a group called Core Christianity produced a piece in which the question was asked of church leaders, what do you see as the number one threat to Christianity in our world today? Without hesitation, the most consistent answer provided has been the church itself namely the false church. So what does that look like? In the 1500s, there was no doubt among the great reformers that the false church came in the guise or the form of Rome's theology. In Luther's day, the Pope declared himself the vicar of Christ, who when he spoke ex cathedra, that is out of the throne, spoke the word of Jesus infallibly, yet the church was centered on a theology of works. It taught Christianity as something other than that of the Bible. It relied on the work of man for salvation. In his now famous treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope, Luther had no qualms about calling the Pope the Antichrist. And of course, one could say that this continues into our day, often in more subtle ways, a false dependence on the work of man as central to salvation. Thus, we might say that the white horse continues to tempt mankind to trust more in themselves than God. But I also believe, especially in the West, Though we've seen false religion rise up in even more subtle ways. Several weeks ago, I read an interesting article by Dr. Paul Chappell, president of West Coast Baptist College. And the title of his article was The Woke Agenda and Its Influence on Churches and Colleges. 
The article does a great job of identifying and naming many movements from within the church today that cause it to become more cultural than Christian. In other words, there are an awful lot of churches out there that are not preaching the truth of God's word, much less are they centered on what it means to be Christ in focus. Among the movements influencing churches to become more cultural are such things as the social justice agenda, racism, and critical race theory, intersectionality, anti-capitalism, environmentalism, and of course the LGBTQT plus agenda. I have to say that we're all living in a time when a number of what I would call significant influential pastors, pastors of large, well-known ministries have leaned into cultural agendas in such a way as to call the veracity of the Bible into question. In times like the ones we're living in, it is critical for the church to remain true to the foundational teachings of Scripture, lest the privacy of Christ and the cross become lost. So if you ask me, Luke, can you as a pastor hear the hoofbeats of the white horse, false Christianity, I would answer, yes, I do. And not only do I hear them, but believe that they are louder than ever before. This is the point I believe Jesus is seeking to make with Daniel. Daniel's worried about the church at his time. He's asking the question, will we ever return to Israel? Will we return home? Jesus, on the other hand, is asking the question in a much bigger and grander scale. He's asking the question, what does it mean for the church to return home to new earth? Jesus is pointing Daniel and today you and I to what it means to live in the end times. Are we there? Hmm. I believe that what makes Jesus' words to Daniel so significant is the affirmative answer to that question. I like to say it this way. When I'm speaking to Christians, do you, can you hear the hoofbeats? I know I can. So let me leave you with this question today. Where do you see the horse riding in our world today? To respond to that question, I want to thank you for listening. I will be praying for you and ask that you would pray for me. Until next time, have a God-sized week.